I'm going to invite you to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're this morning. We're going to go ahead and dive into today's text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's other announcements, by the way. You can check those out if you want to know what they are. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, this, this section of scripture, I told you last week, we started into chapter 5, first 10 verses. We're going to conclude with the last 10 verses of chapter 5 today. Uh, when, when you look at this passage of scripture, this, is, this section in particular is that one of those sections of the Bible that should uh, be, be re- recurrent within the mind of a believer as they follow after Christ. This, as, as these verses move on, you'll see the, the power behind these passages and what it means for you in, in light of being a follower of Jesus, especially if you're thinking in your mind as you come to, to know Christ and want to pursue Christ with your life, or you're just saying, man, I want my life to matter. I want it to count. I want it to be important. I want to live on purpose. I don't want to get to the end of my life and regret anything, but I I want each day to count. And and this section of scripture is that kind of section of the Bible that reminds your heart of of who you are in Jesus and how you are to live in light of that. When you look at at this this particular passage and everything that we've read up to this point, one of the things I love about 2 Corinthians is that this, this is a passage we've talked about with us that is very personal on the, uh, for the Apostle Paul. Out of all the letters the Apostle Paul wrote, there is none more personal than 2 Corinthians. And part of the reason this letter becomes so personal is because Paul, he planted the church in Corinth, uh, but the church had turned on him, and some of the people that had joined the church were uh, living a life contrary to the Apostle Paul and leading the people astray. And they began to malign and attack Paul. And so Paul writes a letter, a very personal to this church. He wrote a few letters to this church, more than two letters, actually. You have at least two in your Bible. But he wrote letters to this church regarding their, their relationship. And 2 Corinthians becomes one of those most the personal relationships that the Apostle Paul has, has penned. And I, I think it's a beautiful letter to consider because as we live in light of Christ, we recognize that the people around us may not always agree with what uh, you are in Jesus and how you want to pursue Christ with your life. And Paul, through the struggles that he faced, helps us to understand how to live in light of Christ, uh, regardless of what people in this world might say for you or against you. Our, our heart is to live for an audience of one, and people are going to have all sorts of uh, decisions they may make about you because of that. But when your life is solely focused on Jesus, you realize that you live to please him and not people because if you strive to live to please people, you're not going to be happy anyway. You weren't created by them and you weren't created for them, that God created you for an intentional purpose. And one of the things that we find within this story that I, I absolutely love is that so often as human beings, when we, we feel attacked or maligned, we instantly want to stand up and defend ourselves. And the Apostle Paul doesn't do that at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, you know what? You're right. I am weak. But thanks to Jesus in Christ, I become strong. And rather than promote himself, he promotes everything about the goodness of Christ. And, and what becomes so important for, that, for, for us as believers is that we recognize, we look at the Apostle Paul, we tend to put him on a pedestal and think, I mean, he's the greatest Christian to ever live. I could never be Paul. Why would I read a letter so personal to the Apostle Paul when I know I'm not an apostle and I'm never going to be like Paul? But the reality is because... The Apostle Paul teaches us within the book of uh, 2 Corinthians that he's not leaning in his own strength to do what Jesus has called him to in the world. It, It provides for all of us a platform to understand, now what can Jesus do through me? Because it's never been about you. It's always been about his strength working through you. And you can shed the Superman camp. We only need one in this world, and his name is Jesus. 
And we get to depend on his power to work through us in this world. And so today, Paul's going to talk about our compelling mission as a body of believers. And he's, he's going to do it hinging really on two words, We're going to, or one word he repeats twice. Uh, in, in verse 11, you're going to see him say this word, therefore. And, he, and, he, and all the response that he said to this point, he says, therefore. And here's the concluding thought of how he, he wants himself and for us really to see how to live our lives in light of Christ. And he does it again in verse 16 and 17. He says, therefore. And then and then he shares with us how to live in light of our position in Jesus. And so he's going to talk about two ideas that we're going to see here together, starting in verse 11 and then down into to verse 15. Verse 11, he begins with our, our motive. What is our, our motive and why we do what we do? And then verse 16, he's going to start then from there picking up our message because the reason we do what we do will lead to what we should say as God's people. We walk in that, con- that conviction and with that compelling message. So verse 11 of chapter 5, let me pick up there. Verse 11, it says it like this. Therefore, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul's saying, you know what motivates me to do what I'm doing? What should motivate us to do what we're doing? Therefore, it is the fear of the Lord. If you remember last week, we started in, and stopped in verse 10, where, where the Apostle Paul uh, identifies for us that we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And, and that's a very sobering thought, isn't it? That, that you're accountable to someone other than just you. And the accountability that you carry isn't just to another human being or to some government power. It is ultimately an accountability to God himself. And, and Paul then says that the understanding of that accountability to God coming before the judgment seat of God helps us to think through the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an important thing to, for us as believers to, to consider, and even unbelievers, because he's, he's coming at this from a perspective of a believer, I think thinking of the unbelieving world, realizing that all of us one day are going to meet Jesus face to face. And the fear of the Lord is a very sobering thought. But when, when Paul talks about it, from, from Paul's perspective, he's not saying this from, from being afraid of God but rather a reverential awe of the authority in which God carries over, over all of creation, realizing he is going to come before that creator and there will be a reckoning. But for the Apostle Paul in recognizing the fear of the Lord, it is an important position for believers. I think it's, it's Luke chapter 26 that says, when Christ appears, that we who are in Christ should lift our heads it's interesting when you study the New Testament and the response to, the, to meeting God face to face that oftentimes when the Bible refers to believers, it describes them in a posture of great anticipation, looking forward to it, lifting up their heads. But when the Bible talks about unbelievers, it's tuck tail and run, never turning in repentance. For us, the fear of the Lord should also include with it this great anticipation because we understand in Jesus that the authority of God is not working against us, but rather is working for us. That in his great authority, everything that is coming against as an offense against God's people, he will wipe away every tear and every pain from our lives. And Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 and 5 declares that to us. That Jesus will bring all sin into judgment. And as we said last week in Romans chapter 8, God will work all things together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But nonetheless, the Lord has 
that authority. I read it uh, like this in in a quote in a book. He says this, fear refers to a reverential awe of God that directs the way one lives. Paul does not live in unhealthy dread of God's judgment because he knows the love of Christ who gave himself for him, but his extraordinary experience of God's love and forgiveness does not deaden his consciousness that God remains a holy and righteous God. There's other passages in the Bible that reminds us in our, our, our position in Jesus, like uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, it's, God gives us a, a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Or in, or in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 18, perfect love casts out fear. I mean, this is not a promotion for your heart to be afraid of God, but, but to recognize the authority of God over all of creation and that he will bring forth his judgment. And therefore, he says it in light of this, that therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That Paul understands in light of this judgment that God has given us an opportunity to declare his message, to bring others in alignment with with Christ, to understand who they are and why they were created, and for their life to matter too. And so we go into this world to persuade others uh, on behalf of, of Christ, to know him. I think it's important for us to stop and ask, what, what, what does it mean to persuade? Because I, I think we can approach the world with such passion over our position with Jesus that our persuasion a lot of times can come across as guilting or nagging. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be told what to do, and nobody certainly likes to be told what to do very forcefully. Uh, belief is a very sacred thing. What you walk in in your faith is a very important thing. And we as people, when we want to rest in that with, with conviction, it, it's important, I think, as believers to, to share the truth. But as we share the truth, to share it in such a way that it helps others discover it. Not to just simply tell them what to believe. It's like this, when, when you live in a home as a, as a father who walks with Jesus, when I think of my children, I want my children to know the Lord and to walk with the Lord and not make a lot of the dumb decisions I've made with my life before I came to know Jesus in college. As a parent, I see the need to declare to them the truth, but to also bring them to positions to ask them, what, what do you think about this? And how does your heart want to respond in light of what this says? That way, it's not me simply dictating what their faith should be, but for them to have the opportunity to wrestle with it in their own mind to start to own it. We, we don't tell people simply what to believe, but we introduce them to the truth so that they can believe Oftentimes, we, we recognize when, when it talks about this persuasion that there might be people in this world that carry some sort of, uh, of other belief in life or may not even have shaped a conviction as to who they should be in light of God. They're simply just living, and certainly there's a, a truth behind why we do what we do or a belief behind why we do is what we, what we do as people, but we may not have thought through the, the depth of the conviction that drives those thoughts. And so we get an opportunity to introduce uh, the, the truth of Jesus in light of anything else people could believe in life and, and help them understand that. And so we th- we think about what is persuasion. It's a reasonable explanation as to why Jesus should matter in their lives because you've come to learn why Jesus should matter in your life. What I've found when I engage people in this world that may not hold to the biblical truth of of Jesus that Oftentimes, uh, when people choose not to believe in Christ, if they've been introduced to him at all or any sort of biblical concept of of Christ, that oftentimes they may reject him simply because, I I think as people we like to argue that it's a logical reason, and there might be some logic to it, but I think oftentimes it becomes an experiential reason. 
that sometimes you'll meet people and they may claim to be an atheist. And as you start to dis- d- discuss with them what it means for them to be an atheist or to reject God, that what you find is the reason that they really reject God is either one, they've had a bad experience somewhere with someone that might claim to be a follower of Jesus and they just don't want that. Or two, they have this picture of God that they have, they have come to think is a true picture of God. But when you start to study scripture and you see who God, how God communicates himself and his character, that that's not God at all. And you can affirm for them, well, if I believed what you believe about God, I would be what you are too. But here's what I've come to understand about God and here's where his word says it. So what do you think about this passage? It's a, a reasonable explanation of who God is, and, and not only that, to walk in the understanding of, of the, the significance of how the gospel can transform. And this is what Paul's doing here. The reason I am persuaded to do this is because of the fear of the Lord. That there is sin, and sin will be judged. And we have an opportunity to talk about deliverance, to persuade the heart We don't have to bribe. We don't have to to guilt. You're going to face God's judgment. (laughs) That's more than enough. And then to share the the beauty of of Jesus in all of that. We're not always successful as God's people when we do that. I mean, you read in, in the book of Acts, chapter 26 and verse 28, when Paul made his case before King Agrippa. King Agrippa even says, as Paul lays out a reasonable purpose for believing in, in Christ, Agrippa then turns to Paul and says, Paul, it's like you're trying to persuade me to be a Christian too. Not always successful in the persuasion of following Jesus, but, but let me just say this, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, do not be afraid to follow the truth no matter where it leads. I find in my interaction with people in this world that they start to weigh, you know, what the cost might be in relationships to their friends and family if they were to be honest with the truth. But Jesus tells us it's the truth that sets you free. It's one of the things we like to encourage here at Alpine Bible is we just don't want to tell you to stop asking questions or to shelf your questions, but, but to genuinely ask your questions as it, comes, as, it, as it comes to your relationship with God and pursuing him. I think faith is the most sacred thing that you have as a human being because it shapes everything that you do, who you are, and, and the purpose for which you live. And so, so we, we should find in that candidness of, of pursuing God a, 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 a place without feeling like we're going to be attacked or someone's going to look down on us, just to ask the questions of life and, and as it relates to truth and, and find ourselves walking in it. So Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, uh, but, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. Paul then, he goes on from here, and he, he really leans into how he's living a life of this persuasion. The fear of the Lord, living this persuasion, and he talks in the second half of, of verse 11 and how he's doing that. We're, we are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience. He's saying, look, we've, we've not been pretenders. We've not put on a facade. We realize in everything that we're saying to you, Paul's, Paul's arguing to the church, that we realize it's accountable to God. And that is a very sacred, important thing when you share uh, biblical truth on behalf of the Lord. It's his message to you, but we are accountable for every word. 
And so he, he's saying what we are is known to God and I hope, I hope that you're seeing it too. That we're not here just to impress you with us. We don't, we're not playing a popularity game. This is about you and God. And there's nothing more important than that because that becomes the basis to shape everything that you do within your life. And he goes on verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And Paul's saying, look, I'm, I'm not gonna come to you again and argue why I'm an apostle. I'm not coming here with the credentials to impress you with a position. You see who we are as other people may come into the church and try to impress you with their charisma on the outward appearance. That's not what we're about. It's the beauty of what Jesus is doing in, in us and through us. That's what we want to be about. Can I just be honest as a pastor? One of the things that I struggle with, and I see the, but I see also the value in, is social media as it relates to the gospel in this world. I see it as a platform, a, a hub. It's kind of like, works like a town square. If you want to meet people, you got to meet people where they are. There's a lot of people on social media. Let's tell people about the Lord on social media, right? But one of the things I struggle with is to take that platform and make it about me. I, I, don't, I, I am not into the celebrity, pastoral, whatever junk of the world. I, I don't see a lot of value in it. I don't even want to be about that. I just, I just want the simplicity of, of knowing Jesus and walking with him in the life and, and encouraging others to do the same. There's nothing more precious than that. Well, if I, if I need to, I guess, make myself a celebrity to that, maybe I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying, but I just struggle with seeing that sometimes among people that just want to get behind a, a spotlight and tell the world all about themselves rather than about how great Christ is. And, and that's what Paul's saying here. People are coming into the church and, and that's what they want to promote, this outward charisma of the greatness of who they are. And that's not what we want to be about. At the end of the day, I just want to faithfully live for Jesus. And Paul's saying, and I hope you see that, that that at the end of the day carries the substance of what we should be about. And, and in verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for, for God if we are in our right mind, it is for you. And this is how far he's saying he's willing to go. Look, I'm going to look crazy if I have to look crazy, if that matters for the, the sake of the gospel to go out. You may, and that's what the church is doing at this point. Some of the leaders are coming into the church, and they're trying to pervert the church and, and, and declare a different message to the church, referring to themselves as super apostles. You know, they took it a step up from the apostle now. They're, they're the super apostles, and they're, and they're coming in trying to twist the, the, the message. And Paul is saying, look, they may be calling me crazy, and it may look crazy, but if that's what it takes for the sake of Christ being made known in this world, then brand me crazy. It kind of leaves us with this, a similar question just to simply ask, how far are you willing to go for the sake of Christ? I mean, when you read about the Apostle Paul, he says this in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 8, as someone who was hungry and thirsty and ragged and brutally treated and homeless and cursed and a laborer who works with his hands and he was deemed the scum of the earth, the refuse of, of the world. That's how far Paul's willing to go. 
And, and, and not only then, when you look at this passage, if you just kind of consider Paul saying, okay, therefore, here, here's my motive, therefore, the fear of the Lord, so I'm persuading. And then he goes on in the second half of verse 11 to verse 13, he kind of, he describes for us what that persuasion looks like, how he's going to live his life, not there to impress people with who he is, but want them to be impressed with who Jesus is. He then takes this thought of the fear of the Lord and he marries it to another concept. And these, both of these become significant for the life of the believer. I would tell you, you walk in the tension of both of these ideas when, when you pursue a life of Christ to be made known in this world. And he says it for us in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So it's it's these two thoughts as a believer, if you want to have this motive to live this compelling message in this world, that you recognize these two ideas of who God is. The greatness of God as the fear of the Lord is made known, this reverence of who who the Lord is. And I I will tell you in our culture and society today, we we tend to take God, and, and it's the tendency really of every culture throughout time, but we take God and we kind of bring him down to our level. And we don't revere him as he deserves to be revered. We almost make him as if he's common, as being more like a human being than God himself. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. We, we need in our mind this great reverence for, for the, the magnitude of who God is. Let, let your mind be, be captivated by the power and authority of this great God. To know that one day you will meet him face to face and everything that we do, as he says in verse 11, is exposed to God. That this power of this God is who you are under. And as you consider that, don't also lose sight of this. The love of Christ made known. The love of Christ, he says, controls us. To the point where he's saying it compels us and there is no escape. And this is incredible. When I think of passages that articulate really the beauty of those two thoughts, for me, Isaiah chapter 6 is it. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, where God says in verse 10, who who shall go for us? And and Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. But everything leading up to that moment when Isaiah was called to the Lord, it it describes for us Isaiah's coming before God, and and it says uh, the throne room shakes, the threshold shakes at the power of God, and the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then Isaiah, in response to seeing that, that image of God or that vision of the Lord, he says, woe is me, for I am a dead man. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have beheld the Lord, the Lord of glory. And so there is this reverence to the power of God made known in his life. But then it says, and then one of the seraphim flew from the altar, and with tongues they took one of the coals, and they brought it down, and they touched my lips. And Isaiah was made new. So as Isaiah looks at the great magnitude of who God is, he also see a, sees a personal God who forgives him and heals him and loves him. And that motivates him to recognize that other people can know that God too. Here, my Lord, send me. And this is what Paul's saying in this passage, right? For the love of Christ controls us. While we see the transcendence of our king, he also becomes personal, compassionate, a servant, full of love to rescue us and deliver us from the sin that destroys us so that we could be free. 
Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now there, there is this theological world that likes to dress up in their Urkel clothing and debate over this verse. Um, Steve Urkel may be a little, as some of us know what Steve Urkel is, right? Okay. Um, they, they ask the question, what is, what is all here? When it says Christ died for all, what, what is all or who is that all? What it can't mean, what it can't mean in this passage, it, it, it can't mean that Jesus' death was sufficient for everyone because that would be universalism and there would be no reason to preach the gospel and tell people to embrace Jesus. But, but what, it, what it does lead us to conclude is that Jesus' death is certainly efficient for everyone that believes. Jesus' death is sufficient, but it's certainly efficient for everyone that puts their faith in him. And then he goes on and says this to us in verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So you see, there's this life that, that we receive when we put ourselves in Christ or when we are in Christ that we find the efficiency of Jesus to make us new and we're wrapped experientially in this love of God and promised a hope of all of eternity in Jesus. This becomes our motive. So if I didn't give you the, uh, the point number one, point number two, if you didn't get it, it's we're founded on the fear of the Lord. And number two is compelled by the love of, of God. And when we think about this, this love and what Jesus has done for us, I, I, the question I think we could ask is, how, how could we have a choice to do something other than, other than love God? Why would we do anything other than love God? If the Christian message is true, to not love God would be utterly insane. A, a, a God who, who has pursued you, a God who has given everything for you that you could find freedom in him to see the, the, the greatness of this God who, who could take his life and give it for all of us that we could be set free in Jesus and find his death efficient for our lives. That is an incredible God. that his compassion towards us would become so specific that his death would be particularly for you. When you read a section of scripture like this and as we discuss it together, it's, it's important to, to, to recognize that this passage is not just about an intellectual ascent, but to allow your soul to rest here. What, what Paul is playing out in these verses, I think, get even more uh, spectacular as we move forward. But, but he's outlining for us th these two concepts that are so healthy for, for, for any Christian or anyone as they uh, seek to pursue after God in this world is, is to understand the reverential fear of the Lord, like who, who he is and, and, and who we are in light of that, but also the, the sacred love of God becoming personal. Those two tensions should establish uh, the, the, the church as it moves forward in Christ in this world and, and to be motivated by this message that, that we carry for the Lord. And so point number two, let's talk about his message for a minute. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, you see that therefore again, giving us another concluding thought and how we're to respond in light of all of this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Um, there was a particular strain in Judaism that 
actually didn't even believe in a resurrection of soul, that this life was about all you got. But Paul's making the argument here. He's saying, look, um, we realize that things aren't just physical, that there's something spiritual that's happening uh, among everyone because all of us are also created as spiritual beings. And he's saying, look, I made that mistake with Jesus. The Apostle Paul recognized Jesus merely just as a, as a physical human being, but he, he has come to realize in his life there was more substance to Christ than just the physical. There was something spiritual happening with, with Christ that became something significant for all of us. And he's saying, I'm not making that mistake anymore. When I, when I think about Jesus, it's not in that scope anymore. And when I think about every human being in this world, there is far more to humanity than just the physical there is value in every soul because every soul is made in the image of God and every soul is designed for eternity. And so this, this becomes important for us not to, to lose sight of that. So, so therefore, in, in realizing the importance of, of every human being, he then says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, I'm gonna stop there for a minute. Anyone in Christ or a Christian, right? That's what he's describing. If I said to you this morning, what is a Christian? Or how would you describe that position of what it means to be in Christ? Don't cheat and look what Paul says. But what would you say if you were sitting down with a friend and, and you were just described what it means to be in Christ? Paul, you know, I think in this moment as the Spirit leads him to articulate what he writes. The phrase that he chooses to use here to describe the followers of Jesus is brilliant. It is, I, I don't know that there is any better word that you can choose to put in this position because through this one word, he's taken not only a, a, a Jewish understanding of Scripture, but he is encapsulating the entire point of the Bible. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is brilliant. When you think about your position in Christ, and that's the first blank in your notes, or excuse me, under our message, the first blank under the title, our message, is it is an invitation to become a new creation. So Jesus' desire for your life is to make all things new in you. But when Paul writes this word, the way he chooses to, to, to pick this word to describe what it means to be in Christ, incredible. I mean, outside of a, a biblical understanding, really, this is kind of a weird phrase. Describe a Christian, new creation. What does that even mean? Right? Like that's, it's kind of a weird thing to just say. You know, you get all kinds of things you could pick to choose here, but he says new creation. But we come to understand that this is, this is a, a gospel theme throughout all of the Bible. This is, this is the picture of what your, 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 the word of God communicates to you from beginning to end. If you start, if you start in, in Genesis chapter one, you see God making creation and the purpose of his creation is to experience relationship for him in all of eternity. That's why when you read the six days of creation, the last thing God does in his creative work and as he creates humanity in his image to relate to God and on the seventh day he rests and the reason he rests is that is so that human beings can enjoy that relationship with God forever the seventh day was never intended to end 
It was to be resting in God's presence for all of eternity. And then mankind sins. And sin brings destruction, corrupts all of creation, and the wages of sin is death. But as you read throughout scriptures, what you find from Genesis 3 and on is this promise of God to come back and restore all of creation. All the way to when you get to Revelation 21, verse 5, you see the description of creation having been restored. But right now in that in-between, between Genesis and Revelation, here we find ourselves in God's story. If you're in Jesus, then you're redeemed in Christ. And what God has done in you is he starts, he has started to make all things new. And the place he began making all things new is within your heart, within your soul, in Jesus. You have become this new creation. It's brilliant. It ties the theme of, of all of Scripture. Isaiah 43, verse 18 to 19 talks about the new creation. Isaiah 65, verse 17, the anticipation of this new creation. Revelation, verse 21, verse 5, it talks about the end with the new creation. Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 24. Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 13. It's all, all pointing to this, this moment where Jesus will transform, begin his transformational work in his people, that his people can carry forth his message, longing ultimately for that time he will make everything everything a new creation. It told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 2 and verse 4 that we groan within our soul. And it's not a groaning of complaining. It's this groaning of anticipation of recognizing that ultimately one day God will make all things new. Our message, our message is an invitation to become a new creation. And theologically important to understand, but also, also practically Practically to recognize then with this new creation, you get now a, a new focus in life. As a church, we're, we're not here to offer moralism. I'm not here to offer religion or, or legalism. We're here to offer something entirely different. A new creation. That God wants to be in a new work in your life, in your relationship with him. And ultimately, and practically speaking, the beauty of this passage is saying to us, Jesus changes lives. This new creation communicates Jesus changes lives. And, and then he goes on from there in, in verse 18, and, and you'll start to see as you think about this message that it's this invitation to become a new creation, he then, he then brings to us a, 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 an even stronger theme of how, how that happens. Look at this, and hopefully you, you, in just hearing this read, you can, you can anticipate the, the theme word, but I've highlighted it for you in case you missed it. All of this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure it is okay in this passage to think about God as a God of reconciliation. And therefore, in light of that, God calls us to be a people of reconciliation. Reconciliation implies, it implies there is a problem. 
You don't need reconciliation unless there is a problem, right? And it's applying in this passage, uh, there is a problem, but, but at the same time, it's not just leaving us in that problem. It's also recognizing there is a God that pursues, a God who delivers his grace, a God who gives the opportunity for us to know him and to be transformed in him through this ministry of reconciliation. And that becomes our message. This invitation to become a new creation, not by your strength, not by what you do, not by how well you think you might impress God, but because of what Jesus has done for you. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's what Jesus has done on our behalf that gives us this place to be able to come before God and embrace what Christ has done on the cross and to find our lives completely transformed in Jesus. And, and from that point, the way that we choose to live our lives is not out of guilt, not out of shame, because Jesus has covered that. But now it's motivated by love. Because there is this God who did not give up for us and recognizing how great the fear of the Lord might be, yet this God has become so personal that we would have an opportunity to respond in light of that for, for him, and which is why when, when Paul is describing this, he gives us a title. If you want a title this morning, I'm gonna dub you with a title, but you get to, you get to title yourself in verse 20, Ambassadors. As you think about this ministry of reconciliation, what is it you carry? You carry this position of, his, of an ambassador. Now, I'm going to tell you, just being frank and honest here, out of all the titles Paul could have given me, Grand Poobah of the World, to me, is more impressive than ambassador. I'm not real thrilled about the title ambassador, but, but the picture it paint, paints is incredible. So you think about what, what an ambassador's position is in this world, it's to represent a dignitary from another kingdom to another group of people. This isn't something that we should see ourselves as having, having, half, or having need to do or, or not need to, let me say, having to do it. That's a better way to say it. This is not something that you have to do, but, but rather it's better to see this as something that you get to do. Represent God in this world to a people that are in need to be reconciled to the Lord because God wants to know them to the point that God gave his life for them. That we would even have a place where we could be invited around the table to talk about his goodness and as Paul says in the beginning, out of the fear of the Lord, persuade others to come to know this love of Christ. Not out of guilt, not to offer religion, but an invitation to relationship that all things within their lives could be made new, this new creation that Christ presents to us because of not what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. So let me end with this. More than anything, church, our heart should be to want people to know Jesus. And this is what Paul says, I, I implore you, in, in this passage, in verse, at the very end of verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So let me say, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, 
do you really want to meet God face to face with sin in your life? Do you really want to meet God face to face without having taken on what Christ has done for you? Without embracing that gift that Jesus has covered by taking on your sins on your behalf that you could be set free? Do you really want to meet a, the, the magnitude of the fear of the Lord that way? I think the encouragement for you is to, to consider the, the beauty of this passage as we face the reality of God being the authority of all things and bringing a reconciliation against all sin, but providing all of us an opportunity to walk in his grace. And, and, and point number two, for, for you as a church, for us as a church, when we think about embracing Jesus, um, what does it look like for us to stand in that truth? I don't think we want to be obnoxious or annoying. Um, I know sometimes as a Christian community, we can be a little weird. <laughs> I remember when I first came to Jesus, I was at a, a function that was not with my church, but it was outside the church with a group of Christians. I, I just remember new, new to Christ, and I'm looking around this room, and I just thought, man, Christians, are, we're weird. <laughs> we, we got some we got some quirkiness about, about us sometimes but 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 at the same time there's some appreciation for it because because in it it points to not not the greatness of who we are but the beauty of who Jesus is what does it look for look like for us to stand in that truth well maybe if I gave a little background of a story of something that I think I find compelling and living a light of Christ. Um, I don't know what it is. Every time I flash up a, a, a picture of someone from 1800s or early, they always look two sheets to the wind and like they were having the worst hair day of their life when it's probably the only time they ever had a photo. I've, I've concluded that people 1800 years and before just, people just didn't own mirrors. That's the, I don't know if I had to go, if I had the opportunity to go back in time, I think that would be my one thing I would take with me. I would take a mirror for people, especially before their photos. But uh, but this guy's name is Elijah Lovejoy, and Elijah Lovejoy, he, he was a school teacher, he was a minister, he was a journalist, and he was a newspaper editor, and he was also an abolitionist. And he chose to start a newspaper in order to promote the importance of being an abolitionist. And the story goes, and the conviction of, of the Word of God in his life, uh, Elijah continued to promote that, but groups of people continued to be angry against him and, and mobs would come and they would attack him and they would beat him and they would destroy his printing press and he refused to quit and he continued to move forward and one day a mob showed up and they were out for blood. But through that whole process, Elijah Lovejoy, he's got several quotes, but he says this, as the Bible inculcates upon man but one duty in respect to sin and that is immediate repentance. And it's saying re repentance is not this place of walking in guilt. Um, it's recognizing we are guilty. But it's not this place of just walking in this uh, guilt and shame of feeling bad. But ra re rather repentance is to realize that our lives are contrary to God. And Jesus has come to give his life for us. And I turn from, from the things of this world and being king of my own life. And I turn to the one true king who gave his life for me. And Elijah's saying, this is what the heart of people need to realize. And he's thinking as an abolitionist how, how people are, are in this atrocious life of, of, of bringing people into slavery. And their heart needs to turn. God is not pleased by that. 
devaluing another human being made in the image of God is not what the Lord is after. The message of Christianity is giving dignity and worth of people because it realizes that they are made in the image of God and that God has come after them to pursue them, to give his life for them, they may find freedom in him. And he goes on and says this, if by compromise, they try to get him to quit and compromise, and he says, if by compromise is meant that I should cease from my duty, I cannot make it. I fear God more than I fear man. Crush me if you will, but I shall die at my post. And not just a few days after he made this statement, the mob showed up to his printing press and they killed him. But he walked with the conviction of realizing who people were made in the image of God and that Jesus has given his life for everyone and he would not sit by idly and not bring dignity and worth to, to, to humanity because of the goodness of who God was and how God made himself known in his life. And the story even goes on from there that the mob that killed them, none of them were brought to justice. None of them were even brought to trial. In fact, individuals that stood up for Elijah Lovejoy, they were prosecuted for standing up for him. One of the individuals that was one of the killers that day that that met Elijah Lovejoy as an angry mob, he went on to become elected as the mayor of Alton, Illinois. Elijah's Love, uh, Lovejoy's printing press was, was in Illinois. But something else that's interesting about history is that Elijah Lovejoy had a friend. And that friend had been recently elected to the Illinois legislature. And that friend would go on to become the president of the United States. And I, I think of, of words like this and how important it's said in Abraham Lincoln's life, what happened to Elijah Lovejoy, he, he continued to remind himself of it and he wore that. And in the Gettysburg Address, he even said this as it began, he says, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, I don't want to do the mistake of marrying nationalism with Christianity. I think oftentimes when we do that, we lead down a dangerous road. But I do want to identify that in his statement, he recognized that the founders of our country saw the importance of human worth and the place that they discovered the importance of human worth wasn't something they conceived in their own mind, but rather it came from the word of God. All men created equally. And it was under the conviction of that lived out in his life that not only practically Abraham Lincoln could see slavery end as he gave the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. But also it becomes a way of living your life in light of the beauty of the gospel and who we are before Christ. That there is a fear of the Lord that all of us are accountable to. And at the same time, God has given us incredible dignity and worth by giving his own life for us and making us in his image that we could connect to our creator for all of eternity. And not only is he our creator, he's also our savior and king. And we have an opportunity every day to go into this world with a message that is contrary to anything else this world has to offer. Every message of this world is something about you performing to prove how you might be valuable. And the message of Christ is to demonstrate to us our value is not made up in what, of what we do as, as people, but our, our, our value is made up in what he has already done for us, made in his image, given his life, that we could become new creations. And in that, walk in that newness every day and knowing our creator and our king. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. 
If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.